Open your Bibles, if you would please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We finished the book of Ruth last week, and the Lord willing, next week, Ben is going to speak for us. He'll be a speaker for March. And if everything goes well in April, Dave Zess will be speaking for us. Um, after Ben speaks, it will be Palm Sunday and then Easter Sunday. So we have today's sort of an, an open Sunday, if you wish. And I thought that I would address the matter of baptism. It's one of the things that we talked about in the church meeting. And so I'm hoping that what I have to say today will help us begin the conversation or a series of conversations about the matter of baptism. In the various Christian traditions, there are significant differences when it comes to the matter of baptism. And the debate usually deals with some of the following issues. When one should or can be baptized, how one is to be baptized, whether by sprinkling, pouring, or immersion, why one is to be baptized, and yet for all the differences that we find among the Christian churches, with the exception of Quakers and the Salvation Army, um, the Christian church practices baptism in different forms for different reasons, but baptism is one of the things that marks the Christian church. It is foundational to the Christian faith. And yet, over the years, what I've found fascinating and frustrating at the same time is that for so many, baptism is seen purely as optional. And this, in spite of its importance in the New Testament, consider what Paul wrote to the Ephesians, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In the list of ones that Paul gives us, I think we would assent, we would affirm. One body, yes. One spirit, yes. One hope, yes. One Lord, yes. One faith, yes. One God and Father of all, yes. One baptism, why is that there? I think we would be a little less anxious to affirm the one baptism. So, to help begin the conversation, let's consider some things. First of all, where did baptism come from? We do not find it in the Old Testament at all. As the New Testament opens, you consider the book of Mark and the book of John as well, we have this character, this figure, who is known as John the Baptizer, or John the Baptist. We read that he had this message, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. This was a message for the Jewish people, a people for whom exile had not ended, even though many had returned from Babylon. When we studied the book of Jeremiah, we looked at this, how that because of Judah's sin, God sent them into exile with the promise that they would come back to the land. And yet you find even when they do return to the land, and then you have sort of 400 years of silence until John the Baptist shows up, even though they are back in the promised land, there is this vague uneasiness among the Jewish people that their exile has not ended. And the primary reason is because God seems so far from them. They have not, the, the relationship they had with God prior is, has not been renewed. 
And so, okay, geographically, yes, we're back where we're supposed to be, but spiritually, uh, we're, we're not. And so they saw themselves as being in exile. And this is why the message of John is that of repentance. In the letter that Jeremiah wrote to the exiles in Babylon, he said, Then you will call upon me, this is God speaking, and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And then in chapter 31, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. In the ministry of John the Baptist, this is the message that he is conveying to the people. And this is what resonated with them. They got this. When he said to them, you need to repent and return to God, they understood that because, again, they're back in Canaan, in Palestine, but there's something seriously wrong. They have not been reconciled to God. So we read, people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Yeah, but where did he get the idea of baptism? It's certainly not an Old Testament symbol or act that, that takes place. Well, as I see it, there are at least three possibilities, and actually only one, but for the sake of argument. The first is that he made it up himself. That John Ken said, yeah, I need some type of symbolic action. I know I'll dunk people in the Jordan River and they'll, then, you know, that... That'll be the thing that we do. I'll be John the baptizer. Um, I don't think that he made it up, if nothing else, because when he preaches baptism, the people get it. And if this is something he had made up on his own, people are like, what's that weird thing you're doing where you put people in the water and, and immerse them? What is that? But they understood what he was doing. So I don't think that he made it up. The second possibility is that he got it from pagans. And certainly we see purification by water in various pagan religions, purification from sin, uh, from the profane, from the taboo. Uh, newborns oftentimes were immersed to purify them. And then the dead were also purified by water. It's not uncommon in the ancient world. We find this practice. But again, this seems unlikely that John would say to people, repent and turn back to God and show it by doing something pagan. Uh, I just don't think that that's what would do. Um, it's also interesting that when Jesus came to be baptized, he said it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Um, and no matter how you take those words, doing something pagan or something that originated among the pagans doesn't make sense. The third possibility is that he got it from Judaism, probably in that period in which we, we read nothing. You know, at the end of Malachi and then to the beginning of the New Testament, we have 400 years of silence. And it is during this period that we begin to find new practices. It is true that in the Old Testament, um, there is an initiation rite for the high priest in which he, water is poured over him. We have the cleansing laws of the Old Testament. But I think what it is, is in fact something that emerged during this period for Gentiles. If you read the Old Testament carefully, and I think oftentimes people do not, there are more Gentiles in the Old Testament among the people of God than you would care to admit. We think, for example, of Uriah the Hittite, 
who was the husband of Bathsheba, who was a very righteous man. He was a worshiper of God. Well, during this 400 years, and this is much after uh, Uriah, we have Gentiles who want to become Jews. That is, they want to practice the Jewish religion. And if, in fact, a Gentile converted to Judaism, certain things were required. If he was a man, he would have to be circumcised. Man or woman, they would have to be baptized. That is, they'd have to be immersed. And then they would have to offer a sacrifice. Now, let me just say... uh, full disclosure here. Not everyone agrees on this because this information we find from the Talmud, the Talmud was actually written 200 years after Jesus was here. Um, But we do know that even today, if a Gentile wants to convert, they in fact must go through the ritual of what we call baptism. Well, how did they come up with this? Well, I think it is symbolic of the washing away of sin. I think there's also the symbolism of being a newborn child, of coming out of the water as a new person. It is the beginning of new life. So, when John the baptizer preached baptism for the Jews, what he was saying is, you all are like Gentiles. You all, it's as though you do not belong to the people of God. You need to repent and be baptized to show, in fact, that you have repented so that you can be reconciled to God. Change your ways and repent. We read in Luke's account, the crowd asks, what should we do then? You know, they've repented, what should they do? John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Men who were known, were notorious for being corrupt. They came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. In other words, change your ways. And why would you change your ways? Because you've been baptized. You are now a new person. And with a new person, you should live in a new way. A fascinating passage in Matthew 11, John addresses the religious leaders who come out just to observe this religious phenomenon. They're not going to participate, but what's going on? People are leaving the synagogues and the temple and they're going out to the Jordan River to see this crazy man. What's going on? John said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. In other words, John is saying, don't say we're in. We're Israelites. We're Jewish. We're the people of God. He said, you need to repent. You need to understand that you're like a Gentile and you need to be baptized to show, in fact, that you have repented. What was John doing, by the way? Well, he was prophesied by Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. He was praying, preparing the way for the Messiah. He was preparing the Jewish people for the Messiah. In the words that I read earlier from Jeremiah 29, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And then one day, Jesus of Nazareth shows up at the Jordan River to be baptized by John. By the way, if John's 
baptism was in the place of repentance. In other words, you don't really have to repent. Just get wet and then, then everything is fine. Then I think um, the New Testament writers probably would not have included the baptism of Jesus because this is somewhat of an embarrassment. Jesus is the Lamb of God who is without sin. Then, then why is he going through this whole ritual? John tried to deter him. We read, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. There are different opinions as to what Jesus meant here. But I think it is clear that Jesus is not repenting. He is not being baptized to show repentance. What is happening is he's come to be revealed. John writes, I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And what happened when Jesus was baptized? As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. It is in his baptism that Jesus is revealed to be the Messiah. And you're like, so what? How does this fit in? Because it marks the end of exile. See, they had been back in the promised land for five centuries, but they're still, after all these centuries, you know, and, and we say, I say that very easily, the United States hasn't been here for five centuries. Okay? Um, we're almost coming up on five centuries of the Spanish presence in the Americas. Okay, so just imagine 500 years. They're in the land, but they have this uneasy feeling that they're not home yet. Something is wrong. And Jesus comes, he is the Messiah, and exile is ended. Now, God's people can be reconciled to him through repentance. In Jeremiah 31, we see that the return from exile is seen as, as spoken of as a second exodus, a greater exodus. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Where was the old covenant established? At Sinai. It was after the Exodus. And now what we find, in fact, is that there is a second Exodus. And it is reflected in baptism. I had you open to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look, if you would, at the first four verses of 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. As best we can tell, most of the Christians in Corinth were not Jewish. They were Gentiles. And yet Paul wants them to see that there's a continuity between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament. And so he begins, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact. It's a phrase he uses also in chapter 12, verse 1. Paul is not giving new information. 
They know this stuff. Okay, What he is doing is presenting a new perspective on known information. The Corinthians knew the data. They knew about, the, about what happened, that Israel was enslaved, and then God delivered them after the ten plagues. They went through the Red Sea. They go to Sinai, the New Covenant. They know all of this. But they're not making the connection that Paul wants them to see. And as he recounts the story of Israel, not only here in the first four verses, he continues... By analogy, he sees two things, baptism and the Lord's Supper, the spiritual food and the spiritual drink. How is this possible? Well, if you look, he says they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That is, they were under the cloud and they passed through the Red Sea, the pillar of cloud that led them by day and the Red Sea, which I think miraculously marked, I mean, Pharaoh dies, his army is killed in the Red Sea. It marks the end, absolutely, of their being slaves. Paul sees this as a form of baptism. The time of being slaves is over, and that happens in the Red Sea. They ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. This speaks of the Lord's Supper, which we won't get into today into today, but the manna that they had in Exodus 16, and they drank water from the rock in Exodus 17. Um, what Paul is telling them, telling the Corinthians, is that it was a type of baptism. That p- baptism symbolizes something. It symbolizes the end of an era. This is who you used to be. You were not a child of God. You repent of your sins, you are baptized, and it marks the beginning of a new era. Exile, if you wish, has ended and a new era has begun. Now, without question, John the Baptizer's baptism was multi-layered. I mean, it it was a sign of repentance. It symbolized the washing away of sin. It was a sign of a new beginning. Um, But even though they may not have recognized it, it did mark the end of their exile. It is not a small thing that John is baptizing in the Jordan River. This is the river that Israel passed through when they came into the promised land centuries before. It was a river that they passed through on their way to exile when they went to Babylon. And it is the river that they went through a third time when they come back from Babylon and from exile. If you read Matthew's account carefully, you will find that Jesus is presented as the second Moses. In Matthew chapter 4, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. Jesus had come to lead his people out of darkness into light, out of exile and into a new beginning. Just a side note, we only have one account or one record of Jesus baptizing. This is found in John 3. Um, Beyond this, we find no mention of him baptizing until we get to Jesus after the resurrection, before the ascension, in which he gives the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
should be clear from the Great Commission that baptism is a significant aspect of the Christian message, the good news, the gospel. It isn't something that is optional. This is demonstrated, I think, clearly on the day of Pentecost, in which Peter preaches and he emphasizes the resurrection. If you wish, again, the return from exile, from the grave, Jesus has been raised. And he concludes, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And how did the people respond? When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What did Peter say? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. His words are reminiscent of what we read of John's ministry. John went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The two messages have three things in common. First of all, there is to be repentance. Secondly, there is to be baptism. And thirdly, there is a sense of the forgiveness of sins. I don't want to go into detail here, but I would argue that for the forgiveness of sins is not you get baptized so that your sins are forgiven, but you are baptized to show that, in fact, your sins have been forgiven. But there is one big difference between what John the baptizer preached and what Peter did on the day of Pentecost. And that is, you're to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, what does this mean? Well, I would remind you, if you look at our text, that in the Old Testament, as they passed through the Red Sea, they were baptized into Moses. That is to say, they followed Moses as their savior, as their deliverer. He led them out of slavery. In the same way, we have been led out of bondage by the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter calls on his audience to repent and be baptized and to follow the one who Peter has just announced as Lord and Christ. Jesus came and marked the end of exile for his people. And this is seen supremely in his resurrection. You might say, well, Damon, that's all well and good. You keep talking about exile, but you're talking about the Jews. And as far as I know, none of us are Jewish here today. Uh, We are Gentiles. Um, How does this apply to us? Let us be clear that the coming of Jesus marks the end of exile for both Jews and Gentiles. Our exile goes way back. It goes back to Eden, when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. They were exiled from the presence of God. That's our heritage. We have been exiled from the presence of God. And Jesus has come to end that for us. Paul writes to the Colossians, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins through his blood. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds as shown by your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That is to say, as Paul writes to the Colossians, people he had never met, by the way, they are Gentiles, Gentile believers. Salvation should be seen in terms of exodus, of liberation, of reconciliation and the end of being cast out or being exiled from the presence of God. When we're born into the world, we are born as enemies of God. But through Jesus, we have been reconciled to him. 
If you have your Bibles, please turn to another passage, and that is Romans chapter 6. The book before 1 Corinthians, Romans chapter 6. And I think many people would agree that this is sort of the passage when it comes to the matter of baptism. And here I want to read um, the first ten verses. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again, death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. The key or the theme to this passage, and indeed of the gospel, is that we are united to Christ. We are united with Christ. In verse 3, we were baptized into Christ Jesus. Verse 4, we were buried with him through baptism. Verse 5, we've been united with him like this in his death. Verse 6, we're crucified with him. In verse 8, we will also live with him. This is a recurring theme you find throughout Paul's writings. That we have been united with Christ in our salvation, but it is symbolized in our baptism. In Galatians 3, you were all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. It's a wonderful way to describe our relationship, our union with Christ. We have put our trust in him. We have put our faith in him. And this is symbolized in the act of being baptized and, if you wish, being clothed with Christ. What does it all mean? We were born as enemies of the Creator. We were separated from his presence. We are in exile. And God sends his Son into the world to bring an end to this exile, just as God sent Moses to Egypt to bring Israel out of slavery. By experiencing exile, Jesus did in his death, and coming out of exile in his resurrection, Jesus has made it possible for all of us to be freed from sin. In that wonderful passage, Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I find particularly intriguing the statement, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. A yoke generally is for two animals. Jesus calls us to walk with him and to learn from him. But for that to be possible, we have to turn We have to turn away from the things we were doing, from the way that we were thinking. In short, we need to repent. And we need to put our faith in Jesus. 
you might say, well, that's fine, but how does baptism fit in? It is the sign. It is the sign, in fact, that we have repented. We have turned away from our old way of living. We have turned from sin and turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. As the various passages I've read have mentioned, baptism signifies death, among other things. That is to say, we have life in Jesus, but we put to death those old things. So in the way that Jesus was put to death and buried and then raised, we also, in a sense, turn our backs on the old ways. We say those are gone. We put them to death. We die, in a sense, if you wish. And when we come out of the water, we are a new person. We are a person, a child of God. The old me, who was in exile, who was separated from God, is seen as dead. I'm buried in the water. I'm dead. That old person. The new me, the new life, the life I have with Christ, is symbolized as we come out of the water. It signifies a new life. It signifies the end of exile. One of the criticisms of Christian traditions is that baptism has been devalued. The focus has been put on trusting in Jesus, which obviously is important. But baptism is then seen as optional. The thief on the cross is pointed to as the example of, hey, I can be a Christian and not be baptized. But from the day of Pentecost on, at least as recorded in the New Testament, we do not find a single record of a believer who was not baptized. On the day of Pentecost, as I mentioned earlier, where Peter tells them, repent and be baptized, uh, as Philip speaks to the Ethiopian eunuch, explaining Isaiah 53, the Ethiopian says to Philip, look, here's some water, why shouldn't I be baptized? And Philip answered, if you believe with all your heart, you may. If you have put your faith in Christ, you may be baptized. And the Ethiopian answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then he was baptized. The story of the Philippian jailer, where at midnight there was an earthquake and all the prisoners were loosed. And he comes and says, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then we read that immediately he and all his family were baptized. Jesus told his disciples, that's us, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And that includes baptism. It speaks of union with Christ. It speaks of the end of an old way of life, the end of exile. As best we can tell, Jesus instituted uh, two practices in the church. One is baptism, the other is communion, the Lord's Supper. Um, I think without question, uh, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, has been highly regarded by most Christians. It's baptism that really seems to have gotten the short stick in this matter. Some people have simply resisted. They say, listen, I am a Christian. I don't need to show it by being baptized. I'm reconciled to God. My sins are forgiven. I don't need to symbolize that in any way. Um, some of us come from a tradition in which the altar call 
was the sign that someone had in fact put their faith in Christ. And in some ways, that almost became the substitute for baptism. That someone would say, well, I went forward in church and I made a profession of faith. I put my faith in Jesus. And so I'm a Christian. As though somehow that replaced that which Jesus taught, and that is baptism. By the way, I'm sure you know this, but we don't have the altar call in Scripture. This is a man-made practice. We do have baptism in the New Testament, in Scripture. And this is something that Jesus commands. Um, I found it quite striking, um, having grown up in the Philippines in, in a Roman Catholic country, that we had many people, we had the altar call, my dad would preach and people would come forward and, and make a profession of faith. But the number of people who would come forward to the number of people who would then be baptized, it's, it's a huge difference. It's almost 10 to 1. For every 10 people who would come forward, which to me is a very public act, I mean, it would require a great amount of courage, for every 10 people who would come forward, only one would then be baptized. It is almost as though the act of baptism has such spiritual significance that whether people know it or not, intuitively we have this sense that this is a big deal. That going forward in church, which to me would seem like, I mean, you're in front of all these people, you come forward, that, that pales in comparison to the act of being baptism. But it is baptism which is commanded by the Lord Jesus. And it is baptism that our brothers and sisters have practiced through the centuries. Why should we imagine that now in the 21st century, baptism is now optional and it's not something that we need to do? Baptism is not a small thing. On the face of it, it might seem to be. You get in water, words are said, you are dunked, you're brought out of the water. It doesn't. Uh, I remember as a kid, whenever we'd be in a swimming pool, we would practice baptizing each other. Um, So on the face of it, it might not seem like a big deal, but it is in fact a big deal. It's no small thing. For all its simplicity and ease, it is still strongly resisted. Do you remember what Jesus said the first time he preached in Nazareth after he had been in the wilderness? He told his townmates, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The exile is over. And what did they do? They tried to kill him. Baptism signifies the end of an old way of life. It basically says, I am not that person anymore. I have put my faith in Jesus. I am joining myself with Christ, with his people. And I'm doing that in the way that he has prescribed, the symbol he has prescribed, and that is baptism. It is to mark our lives as the children of God. If you were to ask me, Damon, can I be a Christian and not be baptized? I think the answer is obvious. Yes, yes, you can. But then I think I would want to ask the question, why won't you be baptized? If, in fact, you are a child of God, you have put your faith in Jesus, why won't you do as he has commanded? It is a sign. It is the sign that someone has become a child of God. Again, we come up with various substitutions, the altar call, church membership, all these different things, when in fact something very simple has been prescribed. Join yourself with Jesus and his people in the act of baptism.
and as I said at the beginning of the sermon, I want to begin the conversation. For This is something that, as a congregation, we need to talk about. If you've not been baptized, something that you should, I would encourage you, strongly encourage you to consider as a sign that you are, in fact, a child of God. The old you is gone, and you have new life in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, for some of us, some things are so familiar that perhaps they've lost some of their significance. I thank you for the reminder of what baptism means. That we join ourselves with your Son, the Lord Jesus. We join him in his death, his burial, his resurrection. Exile has ended. We were alienated from you ever since Adam and Eve, but now we've been reconciled. And we show that by baptism. I think, I suspect there's a part of us as Americans that really resist rituals, symbols. And yet, we're hypocrites because, in fact, we all have our own daily rituals and the way we like to do things. The Lord's Supper and baptism are things that Jesus commanded. May we as your people be obedient. For those who have been baptized, we give thanks. For those who have not, that we pray that you would open their hearts to see that this is something that needs to be done. I thank you that you brought us together on this day to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.